Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're talking to Ushta Devar Kantinwala, and we are talking about genetic testing. So Ushta is a board-certified licensed genetic counselor with over 13 years' experience in clinical genetics, and she and I unpack a lot about genetic testing and what you can expect at above that magic number of 35 years of age, below that number. We're going to, we talk about false positives. We talk about positives, negatives, normals, is everything okay? And everything in between. So if you are newly pregnant or you're thinking of becoming pregnant and you think about all that genetic testing ahead and you don't know how to make heads or tails of it, what do you need? What don't you need? What are the steps you take if things do come back with some positives? How is this information even given? This podcast will explain it to you in a kind manner. Ushta's really lovely and she does not create an alarmist sense when she's talking about this, which I think is a really wonderful quality. So before we get to that, I just want to say there's still time for those that are interested in my online course, Who's Afraid the Pregnant Yogi? And it's really for yoga teachers that are not prenatal certified, or maybe they are, and they just want more information of how do you how do you work with a pregnant student in the middle of an open level class without it becoming a whole prenatal yoga class? Or if you're an experienced practitioner, or new to yoga and you still want to take your open level classes, we can learn a little bit about what to do in those classes so that you're safe in case your teacher doesn't have that information. We want to keep your body safe, your baby safe because you're in it for the long run. So that is going to be starting April 2nd. So sign up before then. And then also just a shout out are the teacher trainees. We're well into the New York City teacher training. The students are doing an amazing job. I'm so excited to be working with this group of people. And we added on a teacher training in Washington, D.C. for January and February of 2020. Again, we'll be back in Charlotte, North Carolina for November and December of 2019. And there's about seven spots left, maybe less. I haven't looked at the list in a little bit for the fall New York City teacher training. So we keep adding these trainings so that we can continue to serve the community so that pregnant people everywhere can have teachers that are well-equipped to work with them and have a passion for this. So it's incredibly exciting exciting, the growth of the teacher training and the online course and the podcast. And to help the podcast continue to grow, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast from wherever you're listening to. It just helps people find this information and the podcast and just continue to grow as a parent, as a pregnant person, as a support person. Thanks for listening. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk to Ushta. Hi, Ushta. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you reached out because, you know, we're going to talk about genetic testing and all that. I think it's a topic that people just don't know what to make heads and tails out of. I feel like there's so much out there. It's not often explained. So I think this is a great opportunity, given your background, that you can really help people understand what are their options, what's this about. And it's just, it's something rich and juicy that I think people sometimes neglect. So I'm really excited to jump into this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're correct. 
correct, right? There's so much information out there these days, and um, and and our goal as genetic counselors is here to help clarify all that for people in a soft, loving way. <laughs> in a soft, loving way, absolutely. <laughs> Which yes. we can get into later. Doesn't always happen. I'll just give my yeah, personal experience yeah. later. But before we do that, why don't you just tell our community a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this field? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so as I just mentioned, I'm I'm a certified licensed genetic counselor, um, and I think for most people, when they hear genetic counselor, uh, people politely nod their heads. But I'd say about 95% of people <laughs> have no idea who uh, who we are as a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but basically, um, genetic counselors are trained individuals. We have two years, generally two years of training in intensive in genetics, but also in psychosocial counseling, um, it, because so much of what we do is delivering information. And so much of our training teaches us how do you efficiently communicate this information in an empathic way? How do you know that you're guiding the patient in the right manner? How you're synthesizing the information that they're giving you? Um, so that's a lot of our training. Um, so I graduated from Sarah Lawrence College, which was one of the first um, genetic counseling programs out there. When did you um, graduate? That was years and years ago. That, that was one that of the was, schools I was going to go to. Yeah, and last oh, minute, really? I changed my mind. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, no, I graduated, I'd say almost 14 years ago now. So okay, mine's um, a little so longer, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> did you like um, it? it? I did. I think it was uh, an amazing program, um, a great fit um, for me. It's the schools. It's interesting. There's just been such a rapid increase in the number of genetic counseling programs that are popping up these days, um, partly because there's, there's a demand for genetic counselors since there's been such a rapid increase in technology and genetic testing. Um, and now our community is realizing that we need to play catch up with, we need more people to help explain these results and put them in context for, for patients. So more and more schools are popping up. Oh, Um, But the schools generally accept just about, you know, on average, like six to 10 uh, students a year. Uh, Sarah Lawrence has one of the more larger classes, but, but yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a growing field. Oh, I think that's Um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and yeah, so since, uh, since graduation, I've worked in a number of areas of genetics, but primarily most of my experience has been in reproductive genetics, um, and also helping in developing and growing programs. Um, you know, always trying to think of ways of how do we better deliver genetics healthcare. Um, I've worked in clinical settings, um, worked at a large fetal um, diagnostic center, um, at Columbia kind of when I started out in my career and, uh, kind of made my way over to to working um, at a lab, so I've kind of seen seen how genetic testing works on both sides, on the lab end where you're processing results um, and creating the reports to delivering that information to that patient. Um, so really seen the full spectrum. Um, and most recently, I've started my my own um, practice. Oh, okay. So that's a little bit about me. Um, and uh, I'm a mom of three kids. I live out in Jersey. Oh, where? In uh, Glen Ridge. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm in South Orange. Oh wow. So we're, we're neighbors. We're, yeah. I looked, we looked at Montclair, but it wasn't quite as easy to get into the city for, as we found South Orange to be in oh, Maplewood. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Maplewood is a super quick commute. So we were out on the Upper West Side for a while and then, you know, two kids and a large dog later, we decided to <laughs> make the exodus over to, to the Jersey side. And, and similarly, we're looking for the shortest possible commute to the city. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed like, same story. We're like, okay, right? how many kids yeah. can we 
fit in, how many pets, into an exactly. Upper West Side apartment. <laughs> and then New Jersey just starts to look better and better and better. Yeah, absolutely. You're like, oh, wow, this is what I can get. I can get land and, and I'm spending <laughs> a fraction of the cost. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. it's wonderful. We, we have a lot in common. So I want to hear a little bit about why might someone choose genetic testing? And I guess why might someone opt not to? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think before we even dive into that, it's helpful to define what we even refer to when oh, we sure, say yeah. genetic testing, right? Yeah. And and I think typically, um, you know, any testing offered in pregnancy that gives us information on the baby's genetic makeup or the risk for the baby to have a genetic condition is referred to as genetic testing. And there are many different ways that it's offered or done. Um, but basically, people who are interested in learning more about the chance for their baby to have an increased risk of a genetic condition that could potentially impact physical or intellectual ability are usually the ones that that gravitate towards being interested in genetic testing. Um, but really there's, you know, after doing this for years, there's, there's really no one right or wrong reason why someone chooses to have genetic testing, right? And, um, and I think everyone comes to it with their own reasons and own conclusions about what's right for them. And often I feel like until results are a reality, most people don't even know what to make of them or what they might do with that information. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a varied reasons why people might choose it. Um, and, and why people may not choose it is if you're coming into um, getting all this information and knowing that hey, you know, I, for me in this pregnancy, I know I would not, um, knowing this information would increase my anxiety. There's nothing different I would do with that information. Um, and that's a big question that we ask a lot of people when we're, when we're doing a genetic counseling session is, what would you do with that information? Is this information you even want? Is it meaningful to you? And for some people, it means, yeah, you know, I will be absolutely super anxious um, not knowing that everything's okay. And I think to put it in context, the greatest chance um, is that everything is going to be perfectly fine, right? Um, and so for some people having the tests that say, you know, we, we went through the whole checklist, everything we did came back normal, the most we could, most information we can give you sitting here, say in 2019, that we could do is good information. It, it allows you to almost... Uh, free your mind and just just relax and enjoy the rest of the pregnancy, right? Um, but everyone internalizes it very differently. And there's some people who say, I don't want to know this information. It'll make me anxious. Um, I'm going to just, you know, uh, uh, move forward. And, and I wouldn't do anything with that info. Some other people might say, you know, if I knew that there was an abnormality, I might not continue the pregnancy. Or knowing if there is an abnormality, I can be prepared, um, so really, there's so many different permutations, um, and and I think people come to it with very different conclusions. Do you feel like the option to find out about genetic testing is offered that people understand it's an option? Like, I guess I'm I'm referring yeah. a little bit. If you don't mind me giving a little anecdotal to myself, yeah, I had absolutely. kids a little older, and mm-hmm. I as I hear you say this, I don't feel like it was ever an option, and maybe it was very well. You know, I could be blocking something out, but. It, it felt like, okay, you're going for your nuchal test at 12 weeks and we're going to talk. Yeah. And, and it didn't feel like it was an option like, do you want to talk to a genetic counselor? It was like, and first you do. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, we've really integrated into early pregnancy all these different tests. Um, and, and you're right, it is it is actually not an option um, in, in reality, right? In, in theory, all of these tests are, are optional, right? Um, but the, what happens is that I think it, it really depends on the practice and the physician. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and generally, physicians or practices will make kind of a like 
blanket guidelines and statements that they feel are best for their patients say, you know, we we feel that it's important for people to have this information. So we're just going to go ahead and have everyone go through the motions of having these tests. Um, and there there is very little to no opportunity for someone to say, hey, but let's put the brakes on this. What exactly are you testing my blood for? And what happens is that, you know, you as a, as a pregnant woman, early in pregnancy, you, you kind of are just so used to sticking your arm out for blood work, right? Like yeah. it's a very routine thing. That, and and so you don't know if you're getting your blood test drawn for that iron level or for a genetic possible genetic test. Um, you're just doing it because you you're putting trust into the provider that's managing your care, um, and it's just what they do. And so I've spoken to a lot of women um, once they've had their results and said, I actually have no idea why I'm here. I have no idea I even had this test. Um, and so, so yeah, it kind of runs the gamut. Um, and I think some providers will will give you a general, like, this is what we do in early pregnancy. These are the tests that we do. Um, and if you have the opportunity to have that discussion early on, you can dive a little bit deeper and say, okay, wait, maybe I don't want this, or maybe I do want this, or, or kind of have more of a discussion around it. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So when is a good time for someone, if they're considering getting pregnant and they start to, you know, they find out, okay, I'm pregnant, that's pretty early on. When do they even start thinking about genetic testing and then even talk to their care provider about their options of which ones they may choose and which ones they may not choose and how does even one choose which test to have? Yeah, I mean, uh, what I would I, in an ideal world, what I would absolutely love, and actually, what I'm what I'm trying to do a lot of advocacy around is really shifting the timeline of when we start having the discussion about genetic screening. Um, and I think if you if you go back to your own experience, often women are bombarded with so much information at early prenatal visits, um, and often aren't even given the time to really understand what all the options are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I don't think you know I don't think providers. Um, OBs and, and other healthcare providers offering this test do this intentionally. It's just that over the past few years, the number of tests that we're kind of putting into the market or offering women has drastically increased, right? And mm-hmm. and we haven't changed the way that we operate clinically. So that OB, for example, in that first visit or first encounter still needs to go through all the stuff that they always have had to. But now you're adding another layer of multiple other genetic testing options. Um, and there just isn't time to go through it in, in a lot of detail. So I think, you know, in terms of when you ask what when is the best time to really start thinking about it, um, if, if women who are thinking of getting pregnant, planning a pregnancy, or super early in pregnancy, get baseline information and get a jumpstart on the info, I think that can only be helpful um, as you move forward in the pregnancy. And and there's so much value in hearing the information ahead of time when it can be synthesized in a calm manner. Um, It allows you to have much more meaningful conversations with your doctor at the time of your visit, and you can really be empowered to lead that discussion. Um, And in terms of actual testing, you know, a lot of the testing can only be done once you're actually pregnant. Um, there is some testing that can be done before you're pregnant, um, like carrier screening, things like testing for things like cystic fibrosis. So you can do those things in advance. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the pregnancy, a lot of the testing that's giving you information about the genetic health of the baby is happening once you're actively pregnant. 
And how does one choose which test to have? Because you know, my kids are, I'm, I'm definitely out of the, the recent range. My daughter's five, yeah. my son is seven. And even between five and seven, whoa, did things change. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. this wasn't that, that long ago. So how does one even choose which test to have? And then let's even talk um, after that about like just how tests have changed. Right, right. Um, so, so I mean, I think like we touched upon a little earlier, a lot of this might be determined by the practice or provider you see, okay. right? Um, so, 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 you know, there are some providers that say, for example, you know, our policy is all women under the age of 35 will be offered XYZ tests, while those over the age of 35 will be offered ABC tests. Um, and then there are some practices that offer all their patients all their options. So it's really provider dependent. Um, and then sometimes decisions are, are determined by what most likely insurance companies companies may or may not cover, right? So mm. if you're under the age of 35, there's certain tests that insurance companies might be less likely to cover. So your doctor may be less likely to offer it to you. Because, because they're less likely to, because of age, they're less likely to have a need for that test, you're meaning. Yeah. So, so I mean, we know that as a woman ages, um, and we, we, you know, you'll hear the num- the age, you know, magical age of 35, <laughs> all of a sudden you're geriatric um, being thrown out there. Um, and I think for a lot of us, we've, a lot of us have had children after the age of 35 yeah. and kind of sit there thinking, Hey, I didn't think I was that old, <laughs> but um, you go through a pregnancy and you're made to feel really old once you hit 35. I know that's um, another whole story to unpack. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, so the risks do increase, um, you know, there's always a risk to have a baby with a chromosome abnormality, right? And, and that risk just increases um, as women age, you know, we're born with all of our eggs and the theory is the eggs, the chromosomes don't separate as well um, in eggs that are older. And we see a more of a drastic increase in this rate um, as someone hits, you know, after 35 and closer to 40. Um, and so, yeah, so I think the way that insurance companies might determine it is like, well, we don't see it as necessary of a test for someone who's under the age of 35 because the risks are lower. So stick with the more traditional testing that's out there. Um, so kind of circling back to, um, you know, how someone chooses, there's just so much variability. So, um, in, I think, an ideal scenario, a woman would be presented with all the options, and if they have further questions, they'd be given the opportunity to review that information with a medical provider or a genetic counselor to make that most informed decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think for for the most part, deciding what test to take doesn't happen over just a couple of seconds or minutes, right, that you have to make that decision in that doctor's office. Um, but, uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I think I you have say, a question. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I was like, I have that. <laughs> okay, so there's a variety of tests, but is there kind of a standard group? And just trying to think of my listeners yeah. that might be thinking, okay, like I remember with both my kids, again, I was over 35, like the nuchal test was definitely something. Yeah. So is there, yeah, yeah. Is there like a, a few yeah. that you can say it's like, yeah, so all right, absolutely. if you're under 35, this is quite common if you're over 35 or just something in that so they can right, get their head right. around what are these tests. Yeah, Does what, that make what sense? the details of them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, all women are offered the first trimester screening, which involves a blood test and a measurement of the nuchal. And the nuchal is the space behind the baby's neck. Um, and, what, and that's done via ultrasound. So they basically combine those two pieces of information, information from the blood work with the nuchal measurement and kind of spit out a, a, a risk ratio or a number. So the results you're getting for that are going to look something like, you know, we looked for the risk for a baby to have, you know, 
two or three of the more common chromosome abnormalities that can occur, Down syndrome being one of the more common ones that we hear about. Um, and a result might come back and say, you know, um, your results are one out of 750 chance for having a baby with Down syndrome, right? And so that's, that's the type of information you're getting from the maternal serum screen or the first trimester screening. And I'd say that almost every practice is offering all women this, regardless of age, um, because it's, it's a good test. It's good measurements. We get a lot of valuable information from there. Um, the biggest shift that's happened in the past, I'd say, five to six years has been a newer test called NIPT. Um, it goes by many different names, so I'll kind of rat off a couple of them. Um, it can be called NIPT or non-invasive prenatal diagnostic testing or prenatal testing, um, cell-free fetal DNA testing, non-invasive prenatal screening. And then there's often the brand names, the the, the labs that offer them, the the kind of trade names that they go by, like Harmony or Panorama oh, Verify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember right? the so Harmony. All those tests, right? <laughs> right. So, so these tests are similar to the maternal serum screening test in that they are a blood test. It is not going to give you a yes or no answer. It's going to tell you if there is a high risk or a low risk for some of the more common chromosome abnormalities. Um, but the biggest difference here is that this, this technology is giving us a much, much higher detection rate than the traditional screening. And I'll refer to kind of that maternal serum screening as a traditional screening, kind of what's been always done for, for years and years. Mm -hmm. um, and NIPT is kind of the new player. And so NIPT is giving us a much higher detection rate and a much lower false positive rate. So what that means is that you're less likely to get a result that is um, not going to be a true result. Mm -hmm. So really, and this, and, and so this is the test that when it first came to market, um, they said this is a great test for women over the age of 35. And I think initially in the early days, it wasn't studied as well or it wasn't tested out in the under 35 population. So theoretically, there's no reason why it wouldn't work as well in someone who's, say, you know, 30 compared to someone who's 35 and above. Um, but it just hadn't been tested. And, and now since then, you know, hundreds and thousands of samples later, we've kind of verified that, yeah, you know, it is just as accurate in the under 35 crowd as it is in the over 35 crowd. Um, but this is a test that I think insurance companies are still um, trying to wrap their heads around in terms of utility and coverage for it. And so there are some insurance policies that'll say, you know what, we don't cover it for women under the age of 35, which is why a lot of doctors' practices will say we're only offering an IPT to 35 and above. But the reality is, you know, when I talk to, to couples and patients and what I kind of go through is that this, if there is a test that's giving you a much higher detection rate, is a better test and lower false positives, why wouldn't you want that? right? Like mm -hmm. it's a much better test than maternal serum screening in terms of accuracy and detection rate. Um, and so it should be offered to everyone. But the reality is, I think, you know, you have to, there's so many different considerations in play and insurance is absolutely one of them. So that sounds like one um, of the so big yes. changes. What about, I remember That's amnios of, yeah. were huge for yeah, years and yeah, years and so, years, but I feel like I never yeah. hear about that anymore. Yeah, and that's so interesting, and that's because of our new friend, the NIPT testing, and um, and, <laughs> and it's way less invasive, right? like so, yeah, yeah. So when we talk about invasive, right? So NIPT blood test, um, so no real risk to the uh -huh. pregnancy, um, and then the big difference between amnio. Um, or, or CVS. CVS is, is similar to an amnio in that it's an invasive test. It's done via a needle. It's looking at the genetic material um, of the baby directly. Uh, but because they're, they're invasive, they're using, using a, a needle to go in, um, there is a risk of complications that could lead to miscarriage. 
And so back in the day, the, when the only options that were available were maternal serum screening, the traditional screening, um, the only options for women 35 and above were, hey, if you want to get more clear-cut information on the chromosomes, an amni or a CVS is the way to go. Um, we'll offer that to everyone. You can stick with the maternal serum screening. You can see what your results are. If they come back as a higher risk, then you can go ahead with the amnio. But a lot of women over the age of 35 were were you know seriously talked about the option of doing an invasive test. That is, if they wanted to know that information, right? Uh, if it was important for them to know that information. The biggest misconception here is that you know we talk about NIPT not having a risk, um, and I'd say yes, there's no direct risk of complications to the pregnancy, but the risk is of potentially missing information, mm. um, and and. The, what information that the CVS test or the amnio testing, it absolutely, NIPT absolutely does not replace the amnio or the CVS. And the reason for that is that information you're getting from a CVS or an amnio is much, much more comprehensive than what you're getting with an NIPT test. NIPT test, you're getting a small snippet of information. Amnio, you're getting a whole lot more information. It's looking at all the chromosomes. But more so, it's giving you a yes or no answer, whereas NIPT is not going to give you a yes or no answer. There are still going to be false positives. Um, and I think the biggest thing that um, the biggest misconception that's out there is with NIPT, a lot of the advertising around it is that it has a 99 percent detection rate, say, for Down syndrome. But that absolutely does not mean that if you come, if you get a result that says positive or high risk, that there's a 99% chance your baby will have Down syndrome, right? And and that boils down to what we call the positive predictive value, which is what is the percentage or likelihood of a result being a true positive? That I get a positive test on the NIPT that is truly going to be a, a positive or um, an abnormal result or a baby with Down syndrome, so to speak. Um, and that number will vary based on age. So I think we've put so much emphasis on NIPT as being a low-risk option, and a lot of providers have even kind of gone as far as to say it kind of replaces the amni or CVS, or there's no need to do it. But the reality is that it's not looking at everything. It's not um, going to be very all comprehensive and it's not giving you a yes or no answer. So if I'm understanding it correctly, there's steps. So like I remember, again, I'm only going from my conversations with people and my own experience. So I'm certainly not studied in this, but mm -hmm. if, if I'm listening, am I comprehending it correctly to say, okay, the first thing's like the nuchal where they're like, okay, it looks fine. And then you could get, if I'll, you know, if that comes up, you know, iffy, then you can take the next step to the NIPT. And if that comes up saying, hmm, we're still having questions, something came up positive that it could, be, it sounds like it's positive, but there's still some iffiness. Would the next step be an amnio? Yeah. So is it kind of yeah, climbing the yeah. steps? Yeah. So, and it, and it really depends on the individual, right? And so if there is someone who comes to me and says, hey, you know, I, I'm the type of individual that I just need to know with as much clarity as possible what my risks are for a pregnancy. I have a very low threshold for having any ambiguity in this. I'd say go ahead and have an amnio or a CVS right away. Like if you want concrete information, yes or no answers, and you want the most comprehensive tests that are out there, go ahead and do the diagnostic procedures, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think for most people, proceed with a little bit more cautious. Um, they say like, well, look, if there are other tests that can help refine risk for the for the conditions that are most 
commonly going to go abnormal in a pregnancy, then let's start with a stepwise approach. And I'd say a lot of people, what typically happens, I'd say with most people, is that um, they'll do, they'll start the first trimester screening, like the blood work, the nuchal. And with NIPT, you can start doing that at around nine, 10 weeks in pregnancy. Um, and then you get the results. And so if everything comes back and if everything comes back normal, so to speak, I'd say a lot of people don't go ahead and proceed with any other testing. It, it, they're comfortable with that information um, and they kind of move on. If the results are abnormal with any of those, the next step to get more clarity is absolutely going to be a diagnostic test, right? So and if so, something comes back negative or normal, is it just okay to assume everything's okay? No, that's the, that's the big right, um, and so I think I think you can. It's 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 um, it's very reassuring. It's really great that those results came back normal, so to speak, right? Um, but it's it's with that understanding that these tests came back normal for what they were looking for, and they weren't looking for everything that we can possibly look for. Um, you know, there's no test out there really that's going to guarantee you 100. I think you just baby, made a right? whole bunch of hearts drop. <laughs> Because you're like, keep it normal. No. Okay. Yeah, so, I know. Sorry. Let's back Sorry down to be a the Debbie more. Downer here. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the biggest issue that we have, right? And, and so I think people go on and thinking that like all these results are great, it's normal, everything's gonna be totally fine. And 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 the greatest likelihood is absolutely that, right? And I think, you know, we can sit here and and be nitpicky about all the numbers and the details, but the greatest chance when we say in the most simplistic terms is that everything's going to be perfectly fine and normal. Um, and you can have a perfectly healthy and happy baby, right? Like that's the greatest chance that we're dealing with. And having a negative result is very, I mean, having a, a result that comes back as low risk um, or negative is, is really is, is really good information to have. So I don't, I don't want to dismiss that at all, right? Um, and this is where it really comes down to the counseling that we do with individual with individuals really is, is what type of information are you really looking for? And are you comfortable knowing that, yes, I got these results. They're normal. I totally understand there are other things that could go wrong in a pregnancy, um, but I'm comfortable with this and I feel confident with this information and I'll proceed with the pregnancy without doing a diagnostic test. Or are you still a little bit anxious about that chance that there could be something, in which case maybe doing a diagnostic test might be a really good option for you? Um, and also, you know, there's ultrasounds that we do too, right? So ultrasounds give us a lot of information as well. And when you're closer to about 20 weeks, that's like another checkpoint where they're doing a very detailed anatomy scan. You're looking head to toe at the baby to see if there's any structural abnormalities um, which kind of presents another opportunity to, if there are concerns at that point, to go ahead and do additional testing. How come recently in the last, I don't know, five to six, seven years, there is a new 16-week ultrasound, where in the past it was traditionally the big 20-week anatomy scan? Um, I think some practices try to do a little bit of an earlier anatomy scan. Um, Does that tell anything different? Like, how is that adding? No, I mean... I, I haven't um, I haven't heard so much of the 16 week scan. Um, personally, I haven't heard. And okay. I might I might not know. Different practices probably do different things. But but an early uh, and I'd say the best time to really do an anatomy scan is around 18 to 20 weeks mm-hmm. because if you're looking any earlier, the the structures haven't developed to the point where we can really make a good assessment, right? And so. 
Um, you might be able to pick up on some things, but the best resolution that you're probably getting is around 18 to 20 weeks. Yeah. I'm having a lot of people coming in. I had a 16 week with my second, but not with my first. And a lot of students come in at 16 weeks are saying, oh, that looks like there's low lying placenta, placenta previa. And at 16 weeks, oh, we know that's going to change most likely, you know, the placenta as the uterus grows yeah, will lift. Yeah, and yeah. so there's been an onset of people in the last several years saying, you know, I'm on pelvic rest. I'm, I, you know, I have a low lying placenta previa and that kind of dampers. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, I, it might be more obstetric related than genetic related. Um, and okay. I don't know if there's any new data kind of showing that there's, uh, you know, maybe they've picked up on a number of cases where identifying something placental related at that point hmm. changes management. I'm not sure. I will try to dig deeper into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe that's something for me to look into. <laughs> so what um, happens if the tests show there is an increased risk? They just keep yeah. testing and testing and, and what well, happens? I mean, so, so right. So if you get a positive result on say, um, an IPT, right, that there's an increased risk, um, the only way to find out kind of a, with a yes or no answer would be the diagnostic testing, like an amni or a CVS. Um, so that's generally the next route. And again, it's not, you know, it's not a hundred percent, um, that that's the route that you need to take necessarily. Right. So if you come to me and you say, look, this came back with an increased risk, but I wouldn't do anything to alter the pregnancy. And I'm, and I just don't want to put the pregnancy at risk. I don't want to have that risk of complications that could lead to miscarriage. Um, and so I don't, I, I choose not to have a diagnostic procedure. Um, and that's well and good. Right. And that's your, that's, that's your choice. But I, I'd probably say a lot of providers will probably urge you to go ahead and have that just so you, you can have that concrete information. Mm-hmm. Um, but absolutely, there's uh, and the reason for that is because the false positives still exist with NIPT. And a lot of it is is based on age. So if, if I were to even just give you some like numbers, for example, yeah. right? So say, say you're... Um, say you're 25 years old, right? And you have NIPT testing and it comes back as positive for trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. That actually, the positive predictive value, the the chance that that's an actually a true result that the baby has Down syndrome is only 33%. It's not 100%. It's not 99%. It's 33%. Um, And so I think when people say that NIPT replaces amnio or it's, you know, the be all and the end all, if it comes back positive, that's totally what it is. Um, that that's not very accurate. Um, now let's fast forward and say you're 40 years old and you have this test, um, and it comes back positive for trisomy 21, that it's still not hundred percent that, that that's what it is on that IPT test. It's about, I'd say like 85, 87% chance that that's a true positive. Hmm. Um, so I think when you look at the numbers that way and you look at what we, what we break it down as a positive predictive value, you get a lot more valuable information to wrap your head around what these results actually mean. Um, and, you know, I focused a lot on trisomy 21. It's the one, it's the condition that, you know, we hear a lot more about, but there are other trisomies that are screened for in these tests that actually have a lower detection rate. So that positive predictive value is even lower or less accurate for those conditions. Um, and so there are, you know, there are the NIPT tests that'll that'll come out in the market and say, well, well, we can look at, you know, 15 different conditions out there. And that's great. You can look at it, but how accurate are those results, right? And mm-hmm. um, and what does a negative result even mean if you get that? Like it doesn't rule it out. It doesn't mean everything's okay. It's 
slightly reducing your risk, but for some of the less known or less common conditions, it's actually not a very good test for it. It's almost better if you didn't have it, right? Like it's it's not giving you very meaningful information. So the biggest caveat is that it gives you a false sense of reassurance. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if someone, for someone who says, I want, I want to have those detailed information. All right, let's talk a little bit about genetic counseling. Yeah. So because I know that's what you do. So let's talk about like yeah. what kind of support is given and how are the tests explained? Again, I'm going to go back, if you don't mind me again, just referring back to my experience because that's what I, I can digest. I remember with my first and second, there's a two and a half year age difference. With my, my husband and I went in, um, this is my second, so I was older. And the person we sat with, she had this like flip chart and she's yeah. like, well, here were your odds of, and we were already pregnant. So yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. go back at that point. Um, she's like, here were your odds yeah. before. And then she flipped it and she's like, and here are your odds now. Oh was, my. Okay. Well, wow. That's scary. Like, well, <laughs> what are we going to do? Sorry, so, sorry. You have to go through that. <laughs> so I'm hoping that's not, um, you know, common, but how, how, what kind of support's given for, you yeah. know, for yeah, somebody I mean, during all that? I, I think, um, Great question. Um, so, I mean, I think over the years I've come to realize that the term genetic counseling can be totally intimidating and foreign sounding <laughs> at the least. <laughs> um, but basically the genetic counselor's main goal um, is and should be to really help their clients make sense of all the information, all the sciencey stuff, while at the same time really understanding where they're coming from and how best to guide them to the answers that fit for them. So, you know, each session is going to be really different. And that's purely because each person comes to you with really different concerns, anxieties, and backgrounds. And I can tell you that I've talked to multiple people with the same exact result or diagnosis, and each person has had a different path to coming to their final decisions. Um, So there's no right or wrong way to approach genetics or genetic testing. And, And as genetic counselors, our goal is really to guide people to make the best decision for them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the experience of sitting in the office and going through all the, the details, what looks like a, a science bio 101 session, um, that experience uh, can happen in, in some, in, in, with some genetic counselors perhaps, right? Um, but I think the the biggest thing that people can expect is that, you know, we're, we're here to really answer your questions, go over like, look, these are the tests that are being offered to you in pregnancy that are related to genetics. This is what they mean. This is what they can tell you. This is what they can't tell you. Um, and as we look at risks, we define risks in many different ways. Using your age alone, we can come up with certain risks. This is why. Um, and then really asking the person, what information do you really want to know? What are some of your big concerns? Um, and really basing the session off of that and, and being supportive with whatever decision people have, right? So people, the people, one of the big questions people always ask is what, what would you do or what have you done? Um, which is a tricky question, right? Mm. And I think, um, everyone comes to their decisions based on a lifetime of experiences that they themselves have had. So decisions that I've made may be an absolute wrong decision for you, um, based on everything about your life. And I've only been talking to you know, an individual for say the past 10 minutes, there's no way I can predict what the best choice for you is. But by asking you certain questions um, about, you know, let's think about if you got these results and they were positive, what impact would that have or what decisions might you make? And getting a better understanding of how this couple or this individual makes those decisions, I can help guide people to getting to that right answer for them. Um, and I'd say traditionally genetic counseling has been a field that has been labeled as being non-directive in that we're not here to make that decision for you. We're here to support you with whatever decision you want to make. But I think in all reality, people are confused. Like they don't 
they want to go to the expert to say, what should I do? What would mm-hmm. you do? Right. Um, and we see that a lot and, and it's, um, it's a process to get there, right? It's not a clear cut answer. And, but there are some situations where I've said, based on everything that you are telling me, based on decisions that you've made, it seems like going for an amnio might be the best thing for you because of X, Y, Z reasons that you mentioned. So it's really putting it back in context with what is most valuable for that patient. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell what what a session really goes through. So as, it sounds like, you know, someone's coming in, they're vulnerable, they're, um, they're pregnant, so the hormones are also, you know, yeah. fluctuating quite a bit. Is part of your training as a genetic counselor also the psychology of how to support someone? Like, have you yeah. ever had someone just break down and, and are you guys prepared for that? Yeah, I mean, and, and and I think part of it is recognizing where your where your limitations are. So, um, right. so a lot of our training has been in um, how do you deliver how do you deliver bad news? How do you deliver news? How do you um, be empathic? How do you um, synthesize the information that the patient is telling you and and kind of um, put it in context of what might be most meaningful for them. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of training and emphasis on that. Um, and I'd say the, the emotions really vary, right? So you have, um, you'll have a couple who's been referred to you because that's just what their doctor does. They're over the age of 35. They have all their patients talk to a genetic counselor to go over all the testing options. So they're kind of coming at you with like early in pregnancy. They haven't, you know, they're just starting off on doing all the testing. Nothing's wrong. It's just getting all the information. So that kind of is a very different type of session than dealing with someone who's just been given results that might be troubling or concerning. Um, so excuse me. And part of, um, what we do is also try to connect people with, so say there is a specific genetic diagnosis that has occurred. Maybe there is something in a family history. And, and I guess I forgot to mention a big, big component of what we do as genetic counselors is also doing a detailed family history to see if there's anything else that we might need to talk about while mm-hmm. you're there. And, um, and I think, this is often in pregnancies, like the first time someone's ever really done a very thorough genetic kind of family tree assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are interesting things that pop up that may or may not be related to pregnancy, but I I can tell you there's probably about 30% of the time when there hasn't been like a, a clear cut, um, reason for someone to have a family history where we've come up with something that might have altered a person's like management or providers that they might see. Maybe there's a family history of cancer that's pretty significant that nobody's talked to this woman about where, you know, right now may not be the right time to, to really, you, you know, you're currently pregnant right now is not the best time to, to talk about all the, the family history of cancer. But please keep in mind that having a, having a consultation with a cancer genetic counselor might be really helpful in the future because there is a significant family history. You should probably think about, you know, different screening modalities, um, really kind of other things that might pop up. Maybe there's a family history of developmental delay that's occurring, kind of figuring, diving deeper into what that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's, it's also really helping people navigate things, right? So maybe there's a diagnosis and they want to talk to another family that has a child with a similar diagnosis. How do you get people connected? Um, say, you know, you're planning on having that baby that might have medical complications. Where do you need to deliver that's going to give you the best care um, how do you connect with other families that have gone through a similar experience that you can talk to? And, and genetic counselors are really there to help put all those type of pieces together as well. Wow, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It didn't even occur to me about the family history, but absolutely. You know, I remember there was something, again, I feel embarrassed, I don't remember the name of it, but being Jewish, there was something I had to be tested for. 
Yeah. So that's another. So when we talk about the different tests that are available, um, that kind of falls into that bucket. That's like carrier screening, right? So things like um, TSAs. Yes, that was it. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. And so I guess one thing I didn't mention on how testing has changed over the past few years is back in the day, um, back in the day, all five, seven years ago or eight years ago, um, not, not kind of like 30 years ago, but we used to offer, you know, most typically what was offered was, um, you know, if you're of a certain ethnicity, we're going to offer you ethnicity based screening. Um, and the reason for that is that there are certain genetic conditions that occur at a much higher frequency in certain populations than in others. And so the thought was let's screen people who report that they're from that particular type of background. So say if you have Ashkenazi Jewish background, for example, there's probably you know, seven, eight, 10 tests that you might be screened for, have your blood screened for to see if you're a carrier. Um, so that, that basically means for most of these conditions, if you're a carrier and your partner is a carrier, then there's a 25% chance that baby could be affected with that condition. And a lot of these conditions that are being screened for are pretty devastating conditions, which would significantly impact, you know, physical or, or um, intellectual ability. Um, so, so that's partly why, um, screening is done that it's also, if you identify some of these things in advance, there's therapies and treatments that can be administered kind of uh, sometimes as soon as birth, right. That need to be done. So having that information in advance is really powerful. Um, so one of the big changes has been, um, earlier on, we used to offer kind of, you know, one, two, three, or four conditions that, that based on ethnicity, And now there's large panels um, called expanded carrier screening, where you can be screened for, say, 350 conditions. Some of these things are super duper rare, um, but but that's kind of another big change in technology, right? Like, so technology's gotten better. We're able to screen for a whole lot more conditions for a much cheaper price. So a lot of practices and doctors are now offering expanded carrier screening to couples um, to get that information. Wow, this is this is a rabbit hole I had not really gone down. Yeah. Is there anything I haven't asked that you think listeners need to know about? Yeah, I mean, I think we touched a little bit about um, the risk for um, from invasive tests, and, and I kind of vaguely said their risk that could lead to miscarriage, mm-hmm. um, and this kind of ties into another one of the changes that have occurred. So, a, a long time ago, the data that was out there. Um, said the risk for a complication that could lead to miscarriage is one out of 200. Um, And we've come to realize over the years that that's really dated information. um, And the risks are uh, much, much less than what we originally thought. And And those numbers, a lot of those numbers were obtained when amnio or CVS was done without the guidance of, of kind of good ultrasound technology. Mm-hmm. But now since we've incorporated all that, what we're seeing is that the risks are closer to, for amnio, um, you know, one out of 500 to one out of 1,000. And a lot of this is very center dependent. So each provider um, or each center probably quotes a very specific number for their center. Um, but but the risks, basically, my point in saying that, the risks aren't as like doom, gloom, and scary as, as they once were made to be. Um, and I don't think people really talk about that as much. I think it's just blanketed as a as a immediate fear that this test is going to lead to a miscarriage. Um, but I think when you stop to look at that those numbers, you're like, okay, well, I can wrap my head around those numbers a little bit differently. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that helps people understand it. Okay, we're going to take a little break, and when we come sure. back. We're going to do a piece of advice or tip that you have for new and expectant parents, especially because you have three kids. You've been through this rodeo a couple yeah. times. <laughs> All right, we'll just take a quick break. Yeah, absolutely. And we're back. 
Great. (laughs) All right. So it could be a tip or piece of advice from your own experience being a parent of three, or it could be from your years of working as a genetic counselor and with pregnant people. So anything you think is useful? Yeah. I mean, I'd say... um it's it, a tip slash frustration that I think most genetic counselors have this day these days um, is that a lot of genetic testing has almost become recreational to a certain extent, huh. right? We talk we talk about the the NIPT test, and one thing that I didn't really harp upon was that it can tell you the gender, right? Because um, oh, yeah. you're looking at the sex chromosomes, and so now a lot of people are referring to the NIPT test as the gender test. Like I found out the gender via a blood test out of ten weeks gestation awesome. Um, And I've actually spoken to people and and heard from a lot of people that said, I had that gender test. And I know my doctor said it had, there was something with like other genetic stuff, but I didn't really care about that stuff. Um, I just wanted to know the gender. And what happens is I think mentally and psychologically, if you are in the, of the small proportion of people that will get an abnormal result, that kind of hits you like a ton of bricks, right? Like, number one, you had this test, you didn't quite really understand what exactly it was looking for. Now you're getting troubling results and all you wanted to know was just the gender. Um, And so it's like, proceed with caution, understand that these tests are medical tests. They are giving you um, they are giving you some serious information about the health of your baby, and it's not just a recreational. Let's find out about gender. Because um, so, in the past, that was usually revealed at the twenty-week ultrasound. Yeah, anatomy. yeah, yep, yep. And people are having gender reveal parties, and all these things are great. But I think let's go back to the purpose of why this test was created, and it wasn't it wasn't to find out the gender necessarily. Yeah, it's also right? a very expensive test to just find out the gender. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but it's exciting, right? I think yeah. for for if you're an individual who wants to know the gender to find out. 10 weeks, like, great. That, that's exciting. It's exciting information. So not to downplay that, but, right. um, but be proceed with caution, understand, understand what you're doing, be empowered, be informed. I think that's a great tip. I hadn't even thought of that. <clears throat> All right. So where can people find your work? Yeah. So, um, I do kind of one-on-one consultations and, and a lot of advocacy around, um, empowering people to get the right information. Um, I have a website called find genetics, um, www.findgenetics.com. Um, and that's where you can find me and, and ask me any questions um, that you have. And, and it's not only for reproductive, it can be to help guide you. Maybe there's something in your family history, or maybe there's a family history of cancer and you want to talk a little bit more about that, or you have a child with, um, a potential genetic condition. You're not really sure which provider to go to. I think one of the other things that I always like to, um, kind of put framework around is, you know, when we're trying to find, and, and maybe this is like a, a tip for parents in general, right? Like if you're trying to find, say, an orthopedic, a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, that, that can be hard to navigate and figure that out. But finding someone in genetics is even harder because there's just fewer people in genetics. Um, and so how do you navigate people to the right resources is a lot of what I, I try to do as well. well I think that's um, and, a wonderful service because I can imagine if you find out something's you know, wrong with your child, it just throws you into a tailspin. And where do you even turn? Right, right. Like, where do you go? And how do you and how do you find local resources? So uh, my consultations are done via telephone. So really, it's accessible to anyone um, nationally, but but I've helped people kind of find local geneticists in their areas who can do a very thorough, like physical exam or or certain specialists based on kind of what the findings might be. Um, And then another place to just generally find genetic counselors is the National Society of Genetic Counseling um, or NSGC.org. 
I will make sure all of that's in our show notes. Wow, you gave people a ton to think about. And you know, I love learning new stuff because I'm out of that place of having kids and genetic testing, but I do work in that community. So thank you for enlightening me of what's happening now because things are always changing as science continues to change. Yeah, and th- thanks so much. I appreciate having this opportunity. Absolutely. Well, enjoy your day. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.